I'm going to say something that is really controversial in Washington. I believe in science. What? Who is that crazy lady? Is she still in the presidential race? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Just wondering. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Desi Doyen. Desi. Yes. Hello, Desi. I'm here. Uh, the uh, the Democratic Party, they owe you an apology. They do. Yes, they do. How so? Thanks to them and their endless debate schedules this <laughs> year, you lost another Green News report this week. Yes, that is true. See? Sad. So <laughs> they owe you an apology, but I will uh, make it uh, I will make it up to you. Okay. For what they did to you. I will make it up on today's program. Okay. I, I know there has been a lot of uh, a lot of talk, noise, news reporting over the past 24 hours or so regarding this new report that the intelligence community's top election security expert is warning that Russia is already up to their old tricks again in the 2020 election, hoping to help Donald Trump and that they are even meddling in the Democratic primary. I hope we will get to uh, talk about that in an upcoming show. But, of course, it's precisely what we have been warning about for so many years on this program and why we continue to highlight the necessity of overseeable public elections, publicly overseeable. Because when you use computers to cast or count votes, they become not overseeable by the public. And at that point, anything can happen. Uh, And, of course, it's not only foreign nations who are of a concern. It's domestic threats as well to the very same systems. And, yes, transparency and oversight remains the solution. Don't know how many years we have to say it, but, you know, cybersecurity experts are not going to save us if we continue to insist on using cyber tools for our elections. It is madness. 
but you know, but you're a broadcast listener, so you know that by now. In any event, I will get into many, much more detail, I suspect, on that report in the days ahead. But before this slips away, since the Democratic Party owes it to Desi Doyen, <laughs> I need to make this up to her. And you know what? This always slips away. It always seems to be the case these days. So I don't want to let that happen. Climate change and the environment have emerged as a front burner issue in early Democratic primary states. This presidential cycle, and not because I say so, but because a whole bunch of polls say so, a whole bunch of polls that even The Washington Post has noted. They say that it has become a front burner issue in ways that, uh, to them at least, has was difficult to fathom only a few years ago. But of course, you would not know it from the coverage of the presidential race or even from the coverage of the smackdown brawl of a Democratic presidential debate in, in Vegas on Wednesday night. As Democrats vie for the chance to challenge Donald Trump in the fall, the Post reports candidates are talking about the warming planet and environmental justice more than ever on the campaign trail, bemoaning Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord and bashing his relentless rollback of U.S. environmental regulations. Good. Not that that means the, the media are doing much to let us know about all of that or to distinguish between the candidates and their positions on this matter, on this all-important matter. How important is it? Well, in Iowa, where wind energy is booming and residents have endured historic flooding over the past year or so, climate change ranked as the second most important issue among voters in the recent caucuses. It was eclipsed only by health care, according to polls conducted for The Washington Post and some other news outlets. Meanwhile, while wind is wildly popular in places like Iowa, bringing tons of, of jobs and, yes, energy, Donald Trump is out on the campaign trail still making fun of wind power, isn't it? It's like every <laughs> rally he's out there doing his, his, his stand-up, his routine. Yeah. Darling, I want to watch TV, but the wind has stopped blowing. It's giving me wind cancer. Yeah, it causes cancer. It uh, kills birds. It lowers the value of your house. It all prevents lies, by the way. Yeah, those all are all lies. Nonsense. They're fantastic jokes at the rallies, but it is not exactly what folks in Iowa who know better want to hear from a president amid what pretty much every Democratic presidential candidate accurately describes as the existential crisis of our time. That's Iowa. In New Hampshire, where moose populations are shrinking and winters are warming rapidly and where exit polls four years ago, according to the Post, did not even mention climate change, probably didn't mention climate change because they probably didn't ask about climate change. Exactly. In New Hampshire, a quarter of Democratic primary voters this month listed it as the issue that mattered most to them, ranking it higher than income equality and foreign policy. So that's New Hampshire, Iowa, New Hampshire. And now in Nevada, potential voters have singled out the issue as their second most critical issue behind health care, but ahead of the economy. That, according to a Suffolk University USA Today Reno Gazette Journal poll in January. 
Rather than focusing intensely on climate, Democratic voters appear most concerned by the central goal of kicking Trump out of the White House. According to a Washington Post-ABC News poll released Wednesday, by a wide margin, 58 percent to 38 percent, Democrats say they would rather nominate a candidate who can defeat Trump than one who agrees with them on major issues. And yet, at the same time, climate change which used to be an electoral afterthought, uh, shows few signs of fading as the nominating contests move on to Nevada, South Carolina, and then 14 states that will vote on March 3rd on Super Tuesday. And can I also mention that it is a huge vulnerability for Trump and Republicans. Yeah. Uh, new, new polling shows that as well, that that's an area where Democrats can really hammer on that. A survey from the Pew Research Center released uh, this month showed that a majority of Americans, again, of Americans, not just Democrats, but all Americans, a majority now say that combating climate change should be a key focus for the president. A majority of Americans. Well, Donald Trump is out there doing his Vegas shtick on uh, wind cancer or whatever. Nearly two-thirds of all Americans also call environmental protection a top policy priority that while Donald Trump is rolling back one environmental protection after another. Two-thirds of all Americans rank the issue almost as high as economic concerns. And yet, whenever the issue comes up during presidential debates, it often gets buried by the electoral politics and whatever Trump-created crisis of the moment, even on our own broadcast coverage. We are guilty here. So today, I kind of want to rebalance those scales a bit. At the Nevada debate on Wednesday night in Vegas, uh, the sharp attack knives of pretty much all of the candidates against pretty much all of the other candidates, that took the spotlight. But there was actually a fairly substantial section in that debate on climate policy highlighting differences, large and small, between the candidates. So, you know, while I know that, uh, you know, most folks, most Democrats certainly are looking for any candidate that they believe can defeat Donald Trump. Well, a lot of these candidates can defeat Donald Trump, at least according to the polls. So by way of making it up to Desi <laughs> for having lost a Green News report this week, let's take a break and we will continue our special coverage of Wednesday's debate in Las Vegas. But never mind all the. The personal attacks and the bickering, you can tune into our previous broadcast for that. We will focus specifically on the climate section that nobody else seems to really be talking about following that brawl on Wednesday. Uh, with Many folks I know are still undecided on how they are going to cast their Democratic Party primary vote. So I don't know, maybe a discussion of the actual issues and the differences between the candidates on something as important as our climate crisis... And the survival of human civilization, yeah, maybe that might make a difference. Yeah, maybe yeah. that might help. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with two great climate communicators, Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Berkeley and David Arkish of Public Citizen. And uh, don't worry, I will, I'll make them fight about something since <laughs> that's what seems necessary to get anybody's attention to anything these days. Don't worry, all of that is straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the one and only Bradcast. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Las Vegas and Reno are the vibrant economic engines for the state of Nevada and are also two of the fastest warming cities in the, in the country. Uh, in certain months of the year, the heat is already an emergency situation for residents and for tourists walking up and down the strip. What specific policies would you implement that would keep Las Vegas and Reno livable, but also not hurt those economies? Well, good luck with that. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, the co-host and managing editor of our Green News Report, has complained for years, uh, unceasingly, uh, in in presidential cycle after presidential cycle, about the lack of questions posed during presidential debates about global warming and climate change. Am I right? Oh, hell yeah. Remember in 2012 when uh, CNN said, yeah, we we were going to ask a question of all you climate people, but we decided not to. Exactly. Now, to be fair, just about everyone else, at least those climate people, Anyone with a modicum of concern about the topic has also complained about the lack of coverage of climate during these presidential debates. And the good news, at least this year, at least during the Democratic primary debates, is that questions about our climate crisis have indeed, at least on occasion, been raised by moderators if only sparingly at times, and uh, in a number of debates, not at all. But it has come up, uh, while the Democratic contenders themselves have, at least on occasion, raised the matter themselves, even when not asked about it directly. The bad news is that even when that happens, there are so many other issues of crisis in the Trump era and issues of electoral politics all wrapped up in post-election, post-debate coverage that we're usually unable to delve too deeply into the candidates' responses and the differences between them, where they exist, between their policy prescriptions and so forth, and poor Desiree... (laughs) is left trying to fit it all into like one six-minute Green News report or something. Uh, So we will make up a bit for that today. The otherwise very contentious Las Vegas debate ahead of Saturday's Nevada caucuses devoted a sizable, at least in this context, 15 minutes or so to climate change. That's thanks in part to Telemundo's Vanessa Auk, the first ever climate journalist to actually moderate a uh, U.S. presidential debate. And yet, It still wasn't enough time to cover the economy-wide, multi-generational challenge required to address the intensifying crisis brought on by climate change. The Democratic candidates all agree that climate change demands a federal policy response, but they differ in large and small ways on how to get there. In Nevada, the candidates were questioned on their positions on fracking and holding oil and gas companies and their executives accountable for their role in causing climate change. One of the big questions that the debate focused on the fracking boom brought about largely under Barack Obama and continued by Donald Trump, who has rolled back a whole bunch of safeguards that the Obama administration had attempted, at least, to put in place and the impact that scaling it all back would have on oil and gas industry jobs. Moderator John Ralston, founder of the Nevada Independent, asked several of the candidates about the threat that extreme heat poses to the state's economic livelihood. 
which relies heavily on tourism, outdoor recreation, and, yes, the mining industry. During the debate, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren called for banning the practice of fracking altogether as part of a rapid transition completely away from fossil fuels. Joe Biden said he would ban new drilling on public lands, while Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg described fracking for natural gas as a necessary transition fuel that should be heavily regulated to stop methane leaks, which, yes, was one of the Obama-era measures that Trump has since rolled back. All of this comes amid a new study released this week in the journal Nature that estimates scientists and governments uh, have been undercounting the amount of methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas, that is leaking from oil and gas operations. The study found that emissions from methane leaks could be 25 to 40 percent higher than previously thought. Great. But there was uh, much more than just fracking discussed as part of the topics uh, as part of the topic on Wednesday night. So I thought it would be a good idea for a happy change to actually focus on what the candidates had to say about all of it. Joining us now for some expert help in doing so are two policy experts in these areas. Joining us for the first time today, I think, is Leah Stokes. She's assistant professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara and a researcher on climate and energy politics, renewable energy, water and chemicals policy. She received her doctorate from MIT and previously served as an environmental policy analyst for the Canadian Parliament. So we know she is very, very polite. Leah Stokes, welcome to the broadcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Good to have you here. David Arkish is the Managing Director of Public Citizens Climate Program. He has broad experience advocating for consumers before all three branches of government, having lobbied extensively before the U.S. Congress and federal regulatory agencies as an expert witness. He's also litigated complex cases in federal courts. David Arkish, uh, welcome back. I, I, I don't think we have spoken to you on the broadcast since ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson was being confirmed by the U.S. Senate to become Trump's Secretary of State. How did that work out, by the way, David? <laughs> Those were happy times. It's great to be back talking to you. Uh, that didn't go so well. No? Well, it's all better now, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, and, and welcome to both of you. Delighted to have you both here. So I'd, I'd love to sort of roll through the various questions and answers from the candidates at the debate on Wednesday, as many as we can get through uh, on climate, uh, and essentially get your thoughts on the policy prescriptions, whether they are doable on both a political and scientific level, and and uh, and, and what it may take uh, to make them doable, and how the candidates differ and or agree on this score. Uh, so I want to sort of run through these uh, sound clips, some of these exchanges. But before I do, very quickly, I'd, I'd love to get sort of each of your quick, broad overview takes. Uh, it, you know, if if anybody jumped out for good or ill among the candidates on uh, on Wednesday on this score, uh, Leah Stokes, a- any thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I think that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders really stood out as climate champions. Um, Elizabeth Warren, for example, brought up environmental justice, even though that was never raised as a topic. Mm-hmm. And the polling is suggesting that people are really concerned about the unequal impacts that climate change and other environmental problems like air pollution are having on black and brown communities. 
So uh, I think she really uh, stood out for the depth of her plans and her commitment to the issue. And Bernie Sanders also uh, spoke up about ending the fossil fuel era. So I think that they stood out as real climate champions. Uh, David Arkish, since uh, it, it can be difficult at times to, uh, you know, on, on cable news, they say this is not an interesting topic, so they get people to debate and fight it out. So would you mind telling Leah why she's entirely wrong on all of her points? <laughs> Wow, you want me to fight with her? I was going to say, I'm, you know, I basically agree with what Leah said. <laughs> oh, damn but, it. Uh, no, uh, here, I, I mean, I, I can try a little bit. That's all right. A little of something different. She, um, one thing I would note is that Joe Biden actually brought up um, environmental justice. Also. He didn't use those words, but he mm-hmm. actually did bring up the environmental pollution problems in communities of color. So, you know, credit where credit's due on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um at least once, when, when asked pretty directly a climate question, Elizabeth Warren sort of pivoted away from it, which, you know, as a climate advocate, that's not what I want to hear mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of uh, showing commitment, but that was just once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought Bernie Sanders didn't actually say a lot during this segment. And if I recall, I think he was sort of trying to get a word in, and this was one of these unusual situations where he was not able to. <laughs> this <laughs> I, is true. Uh, usually, he usually manages to speak up, but I but but it was sort of surprising how this is he's a real climate champ as yeah. uh, as Leah said and it was sort of surprising not to hear more from him. The other two general observations, you know, Bloomberg's foundation has done some great stuff on climate, mm-hmm. um, and I was surprised. I mean, who knew what what Bloomberg was going to be like uh, mm-hmm. on the stage? But he was very spotty. I mean, some of the stuff he said was was actually you know very sharp uh, and very on point, and then some of it was like circuit. 2012 mm. like he hasn't been keeping up we'll, um we'll, yeah and, I mean, yeah and we'll we'll get to some of those because yeah i was uh, struck by that as well for a guy who has been such a, a climate champion talking about bloomberg here and you can say what you want about bloomberg but he's put you know his money where his mouth is or at least some of his money and he has been a champion and i was uh sort of surprised he did seem to pull his punches uh i want to start with uh, bernie sanders but des i want to get uh, your uh, big broad overviews uh, before we do well i again i would agree with leah that uh, bernie and uh, elizabeth warren stand out specifically for their plans which are really really far along as far as meeting what the science requires but i was surprised that nobody really pivoted as much to jobs, to allaying the fears of the American people about, Mm. hey, if you're in an industry that's going to be impacted, there is going to be a job for you, a transition for you. And, you know, like in the Green New Deal, rebuilding things, you in the mining industry, you have valuable earth moving experience. We can use that in rebuilding infrastructure, stuff like that. They did talk about uh, that this will create jobs, thousands of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs. I thought they could have gone more specific. Yeah, exactly. You know, everybody says, oh, yeah, it's going to create a bazillion jobs, but they're not really clear on what that means. I that mean, Trump says that stuff, too. They so. didn't speak to the loss of jobs that will also come with this and the, nece- and uh, the necessity of transitioning that. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but let's start uh, big here since uh, you guys all cited Bernie Sanders. Uh, his call to ban all fracking, as I understood it, period, end of story, no matter the cost to jobs in states that have become dependent on the natural gas fracking industry. You want a total ban on nat- natural gas extraction, yep. fracking in the next five years. The industry obviously supports a lot of a lot of jobs around the country, yep. including thousands in the battleground state of Pennsylvania. What do you tell these workers? It's supporting a big industry right now, sir. What I tell these workers is that the scientists are telling us that if we don't act incredibly boldly within the next six, seven years, 
There will be irreparable damage done, not just to Nevada, not just to Vermont or Massachusetts, but to the entire world. Joe said it right. This is an existential threat. You know what that means, Chuck? That means we're fighting for the future of this planet. And the Green New Deal that I support, by the way, will create up to 20 million good-paying jobs as we move our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. This is a moral issue, my friends. We have to ha- take the responsibility. So uh, not pulling punches there, at least, uh, Leah Stokes. Uh, Senator Sanders uh, calls for a ban on all fracking, period. Not just new fracking, but all fracking. Uh, is that how you heard it, uh, Leah? And is that uh, realistic from an energy needs standpoint at this point in this country? Yeah, well, both... Um Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's campaigns have previously said that they, uh, you know, would ban or begin to phase out fracking uh, on day one of their administrations. Many other candidates have also talked about banning fracking on public lands, which is quite straightforward to do from an executive action perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's lots of controversy around fracking, and people sometimes take different sides on it. My own view is that methane leakage, which is when part of the natural gas, the the fossil gas, escapes during the extraction process, Mm -hmm. that that um, is much worse than we thought. Every time a paper comes out, and one came out this week, as you mentioned in Mm -hmm. the lead of this program, every time a paper, paper comes out, it's worse than we thought. And that methane leakage is really potent as a greenhouse gas. It's really bad for climate change. And so my own view is that um, fracking is proving much more problematic than we thought a decade ago. And we have to remember that fracking isn't just about extracting fossil gas. It's also about extracting oil. Mm -hmm. And we know that to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we cannot build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. That is what the research shows. So yes, if we talk about what the next Democratic administration should do, they should begin the process as soon as possible to start phasing that out. Because we know that whenever you pass a new bill or you get new regulations going, they take years. There's court battles, Mm -hmm. there's resistance from interest groups, so it's not going to happen overnight. And so I do think that the process has to start as fast as possible to get us off of fossil gas. David Arkish, uh, you have spent a lot of years lobbying in D.C. I know that uh, banning all fracking would be a, a non-starter from a Republican standpoint right now, but it, can it even be accepted by Democrats on Capitol Hill? Uh, obviously, there would be a lot of, you know, it would be controversial among a lot of Democrats as well. But I think that I'm not a big fan of, Sort of handicapping what the what the political likelihood of passing something is on mm-hmm. climate right now, uh, because one of the best developments, one of the only positive developments on climate in recent years, is how quickly the uh, political landscape is shifting. And this is you know in, in large part because of a series of reports that have come out, uh, you know, sort of making clear how dire and urgent it's becoming and how mm-hmm. severe the the risks are, and also because of uh, another major factor is the youth activism. Uh, groups like Sunrise and, and Greta Thunberg and, and, and those developments. And then, uh, frankly, I think some of it is, is, is the leadership of presidential candidates. Right? They have an ability to really elevate issues. Uh, we've got a few candidates who have really made it um, a big priority. One of them is no longer in the race, um, Governor Inslee. Mm-hmm. But you know, 
what looks possible now mm-hmm. is a set of things, or what's at least on the table in serious conversation, are, are things that would look looked crazy just two years ago, looked radical. Mm. So I, I think as climate advocates, we should keep pushing, mm-hmm. pushing the envelope, pushing the Overton window, as people say, right. and, and shift that ground as opposed to negotiating with ourselves right now about what we think could pass or couldn't pass. Well, uh, Amy Klobuchar is debating what can pass and what can't pass. She disagreed uh, strongly with uh, Sanders' call to ban fracking, citing it as a necessary transition fuel and arguing that there is not the political will in D.C. to stop its momentum, at least not right now. Here's a here's a taste. Do you take these warnings that maybe fracking is a step backwards, not a step forward, not a transition? I've made it very clear that we have to review all of the permits that are out there right now for natural gas um, and then make decisions on each one of them and then not grant new ones until we make sure that it's safe. But it is a transitional fuel. And I want to add something that really hasn't been brought up by my colleagues. This is a crisis. And a lot of our plans are very similar to get to carbon neutral uh, by 2045, 2050 something like that. But we're not going to be able to pass this unless we bring people with us. And you can do this in a smart way. One, get back into that international climate change agreement. Two, clean power rules. Bring those back. And the president can do this herself without Congress, as well as the gas mileage standard. But when it comes to putting a sweep, yeah. a price on carbon, this is very important, okay. Chuck. We have to make sure that that money goes back directly yeah. as dividends to the people that are going to need help for paying their bills. Otherwise, Senator, we're not going to pass it. So there has yeah. to be a heart to the policy to get this done. David, Klobuchar there uh, does not seem to be taking your what, what I took from your thought, your advice, that, you know, a president comes in with a mandate. And if it's a, a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren calling for fracking, if he or she is elected, seems like they bring a lot of heft to that idea that, yes, the people are behind me here. Klobuchar is saying, no, the people would not be behind a ban on 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 natural gas but there are other things that we could and should do is she right about that so i, I think the, the the one place i give her a lot of credit and, and i don't want to be misunderstood is it, it, at some point it definitely becomes important to count votes and to figure out who you can get and who you can't mm-hmm. i just think this that this is not really the time for that and i think she's wrong on on a lot of what she said for that reason you know fracking is first of all is not a transition fuel um as leah was explaining you know, every time we see a new study about the methane released in the process of the entire life cycle of natural gas, the news is worse and worse, and people became skeptical at least five years ago that it was even better than coal. Uh, and that was before we just got this new study mm-hmm. two days ago that says the emissions are 25 or to 40 percent higher than we thought they were before that. I mean, it turns out it might be worse than coal. Right. Um, and so it's definitely not a transition fuel. We definitely need to phase it out as quickly as possible. And uh, we need to change the political landscape to make that possible. And, you know, a big piece of that is, is, is leadership. A big piece of that is activism. Uh, and, frankly, the, the, a big piece of it, one of the biggest ones and one that people haven't quite figured out yet, is working with the unions and working with the workers in these industries mm. uh, to figure out a transition plan that works for them. Uh, you know, if we can do that, that's the key. That will be the main obstacle uh, if, if, if there's you know, an alignment of a Democratic president, Democratic House and Senate, and, you know, a theoretical chance of passing major climate legislation, you know, one of the biggest problems with things like a fracking ban uh, and some of the other things we need to do is making sure we're taking good care of 
the workers who are going to need to be taken care of in the process. Leah, uh, has this transition uh, that uh, Klobuchar and others are talking about, has it essentially gone on too long at this point, just on a scientific level? And, uh, you know, I think that Klobuchar, I, I suspect you guys probably agree with what she's saying about a carbon tax and that necessity. But at, at the same time, if we're still hanging on to this so-called transition fuel, uh, are, are, will it become possible to climb our way out of this crisis? Yeah, I mean, I disagree with pretty much everything uh, Klobuchar said <laughs> during that segment. Um, you know, I think it's wonderful to have women in the race, and I respect her on, on those grounds for sure. Uh, and I think she's a good person with good intentions. But I think on climate change, she's not a good candidate. When she says that we all have the same plans and we're all basically on the same page, that's just not true. It's easy for journalists or everyday people to not understand the difference between decarbonizing the electricity system by, you know, 2030 versus 2035 versus 2050. But those are massive differences in terms of how quickly we can clean up our transportation sector and our building sector by electrifying those industries on a clean electricity grid. It's a really big difference. Um, Mm. Whether or not we continue to invest in fracking is a huge difference in terms of if we're going to put more money into natural gas plants that then become stranded costs that ratepayers have to pick up at the end of the day. We have to stop building new gas plants yesterday because we already have a lot of them and we're going to have to phase them out just like we phased out coal. Hmm. So, you know, I I just feel, and, and to speak too to this carbon tax idea and this idea of a dividend, you know, carbon taxes haven't worked extremely well in a lot of countries around the world. And they are not great instruments when it comes to developing new low carbon technologies. When you think about growing income inequality and the fact that one in three Americans today already struggles to pay their energy bills, and your solution to the climate problem is to just make it more expensive for people to pay their energy bills, and you're not focused on increasing the you know, minimum wage or the standards or the social security net around people, that is a recipe for disaster for climate policy. Mm. So that is why I support a Green New Deal, and I am far more in line with candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who really understand that we have to bring everybody along in the transition, including unions, as was just mentioned, and make sure that people can afford pay for their energy system, not just increase the cost of energy and expect that people who are struggling today will be able to pick up the tab. Elizabeth Warren, uh, who you may uh, more agree with here in this uh, clip, uh, she is calling for a ban, I think, on all new fracking leases, if not all fracking like Bernie. But she she did not care for Amy Klobuchar's answer to that question either. (laughs) Listen to Senator Klobuchar's point. She says we have to think smaller in order to get it passed. I don't think that's the right approach here. Why can't we get anything passed in Washington on climate? Everyone understands the urgency, but we've got two problems. The first is corruption, an industry that makes its money felt all through Washington. The first thing I want to do in Washington is pass my anti-corruption bill so that we can start making the change we need to make on climate. And the second is the filibuster. If you're not willing to roll back the filibuster, then you're giving the fossil Senator. fuel industry a veto. Thank you, Vanessa. All of the work Senator, thank you, Vanessa. 
So uh, Leah, is is corporate corruption, uh, which she talks about a lot in a lot of contexts, but is that uh, really at the center of what is uh, holding holding back, you know, action on climate change here and our seeming inability to take the measures that are needed to end fossil fuels that scientists, as you note, are all now saying must happen and must happen quickly at this point. Is it all about corporate corruption, ultimately? You know, my analysis is exactly like Elizabeth Warren's analysis. I've done research that shows that uh, chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress, these are the people who help decide how members and senators are going to vote on bills. Mm -hmm. We ask them, you know, what do you think your, your constituency, your district thinks about climate change? And we found that they underestimated public support for climate action when they met with the fossil fuel industry more, when lobbyists came around and knocked on their doors and got in their offices, Mm. and when they took more money from the fossil fuel industry. And when you think about the billions of dollars that have gone into the climate denial campaign since the early 1990s from groups like the American Petroleum Institute, ExxonMobil, you know, that has driven a huge wedge between public acceptance of the climate crisis and its urgency and what politicians are actually willing to do. Mm. So I agree entirely with this approach that we have to break the power of the fossil fuel industry in Washington, D.C. And I got to say, I take her second point, too. Mm -hmm. The filibuster is going to be a huge stumbling block. And this is a place that I get very puzzled about with Bernie Sanders. He has not said that he is willing to get rid of the filibuster. And and climate champions like Jay Inslee, who was mentioned, has said it's a necessary condition to making progress on climate change. Even groups like Sunrise, which support Bernie Sanders, have said, why aren't you willing to get rid of the filibuster? If we have any hope of getting a bill through, you know, even with a narrow margin in the Senate, we we are not going to be able to hold on to that filibuster. And I'd rather have a livable climate than a filibuster. Mm. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Well, I just, uh, there's a part of me that wonders if maybe that's a strategic choice on Sanders' part, because that would avoid triggering his colleagues in the Senate, who would then mobilize against it. Mm. Maybe. Mm. Well, uh, David, on that point, because you've spent a lot of time, as I said, on Capitol Hill, uh, ending the filibuster necessary to make any of this happen. A, is she right? And B, is there an appetite for that if, and obviously it's a very big if, uh, if Democrats can take back a majority in the Senate, Do they have the appetite to end the filibuster once and for all, uh, especially if it means dealing with something like the climate crisis? So, uh, first of all, yes, it's absolutely necessary if we're going to solve this problem. It's hard to imagine um, getting the majorities that we need, you know, to reach 60 votes in the Senate on the range of policies, the scope and scale and speed and urgency with which we need to be uh, passing these policies to, Mm -hmm. to fight climate change. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the places where getting rid of the filibuster is the most controversial is among senators themselves. Uh, <laughs> you know, it gives senators outsized power um, if mm-hmm. they, you know, if it's easier to, for an individual senator to block things, uh, which historically has been a, you know, a huge source of power for senators. And frankly, there are plenty of terrible things that have been uh, have been stopped by the filibuster. So it has, it has worked for our side, too. Now, of course, you know, I think there are much worse things that have, <laughs> uh, much worse things that have been supported by mm-hmm. a filibuster. You know, um, you know, the history of, you know, filibusters on, on civil rights legislation, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, I think it needs to go. Uh, and I hope um, that if, you know, a Democratic president is elected and, and, and there's a majority in the Senate, then 
uh, we will have made enough progress on that issue and enough of the sort of the spirit and the excitement of what could actually be done on so many critical problems the country is facing if we get rid of the filibuster that we would actually do it. But I, I don't I hear. Hope that's the case. Uh, well, but I don't really hear any uh, Democratic senators other than Elizabeth Warren. Uh, actually talking about that necessity and i i agree i think it is a necessity especially in dealing with something like this but i I mean i i wonder if there's the political will for it i know that of course if the democrats take back the majority the republicans would certainly be against ending the filibuster but i I don't even know if democrats are i mean do you get any sense that they are stepping up that they are interested in that uh, possibility if they do take back a majority if one thing to make clear, if the if the Democrats have a majority, they don't need any Republican votes to do it, as long as all the Democrats agree. You, to to end the filibuster, you could get, right. You could actually get rid of the filibuster without worrying about a 60-vote threshold, because you can change the rules with just a spare majority, right. oddly enough. So, yeah, I think that there's a little more support than you hear, right? I think it's a controversial position among senators. I think it's one of these things where minds can change quickly. But Senator Sanders is very puzzlingly, I think, sort of an outlier in this. Maybe Mm. it's a strategic move to, you know, he tends not to be one to hide his intentions to avoid scaring people off. Well, (laughs) that's true. How strong his plans are, but maybe that's what he's doing here. But on this Um, one, yeah. Uh, It doesn't really make a lot of sense that he's saying some of the most important and biggest things he wants to do are it's very hard to see them happening without getting rid of the filibuster. Maybe that's just a fight he doesn't want to take on now. I think the other thing is if, if a president is elected, they do have uh, you know, a mandate, as Desi was saying, and they do have a lot of leadership capacity and, uh, and sort of direction-setting capacity, especially very early on in the mm-hmm. presidency. Right? And mm-hmm. so I think sort of swept up in that, depending on how the election, you know, as long as it doesn't drag out for six months and there's litigation, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if there's a sort of you know, sweeping moment of excitement and a sense of real empowerment and real possibility, then presidential leadership alone on this point could actually make a pretty big difference. Uh, and again, most of the candidates have come out in favor of, of ditching the filibuster. Yeah, uh, well, uh, the candidates, but okay, uh, good to know, because I don't hear it coming out uh, from a lot of Democrats in, who are currently in the Senate. But right. in, any, in any event, I got. I want to make sure I get through, out of a sense of fairness, make sure I get through uh, three Everybody? more candidates okay. here. So let me take a quick break here. We will uh, come back with Dr. Leah Stokes and David Arkush. And uh, talk about Biden, Bloomberg, and Buttigieg. See what they had to say on all of this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with our special coverage of the climate crisis aspects from Wednesday's uh, very wild debate in Las Vegas ahead of the Nevada caucuses on Saturday. We're speaking with our special guests, Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara and David Arkish 
of public citizen. Uh, All right, let me jump into uh, Joe Biden here, uh, who was pressed on his prior statements that he would prosecute fossil fuel industry CEOs for for misleading the public on climate change. And I said that you want to hold oil and gas executives accountable for their role in harming our planet. You have even suggested that you might put them in jail. Which companies are you talking about and how far are you willing to go? I'm willing to go as far as we have to go. First of all, I would eliminate all the subsidies we have for oil and gas. That would save millions and millions of billions of dollars. I have a trillion dollar program for infrastructure that will provide for thousands and thousands of new jobs. On day one, when I'm elected president, I'm going to invite all of the members of the Paris Accord to Washington, D.C. I will get them to up the ante. Vice President Biden, you didn't answer to my questions. What would you do with these companies that are responsible for the destruction of our planet? What would I do with them? I would make sure they, number one, stop. Number two, if you demonstrate that they, in fact, have done things already that are bad and they've been lying, they should be able to be sued. They should be able to be held personally accountable. And they should, and not only, not only the company, not the stockholders, but the CEOs of those companies. So I, I don't think he net mentioned any specific ones, as uh, Vanessa Auk had requested there. Right, he did not. But uh, And never mind inviting all the members of the Paris Accord to all D.C. All 192 of them? That's every single country, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Pretty much? but you know, that's what, those, uh, that's what the U.N. is for. Okay, yeah. But in any event, uh, uh, David Arkush, does, uh, does the president have the muscle to do what Biden is suggesting here as far as holding them accountable? What is he going to do? Go tell the DOJ to start bringing lawsuits? I thought that Democrats were supposed to be against the president telling the DOJ who to prosecute and, and not. I think that uh, I mean he can and he should set broad priorities and 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 they should be going after fossil fuel companies I, again not just suing them for you know sort of civil damages mm-hmm. um, and not just suing them to to stop some of what they're doing and to phase out as quickly as possible but going after them criminally I mean what they have done and known what they were doing for as long as they've been doing it is absolutely criminal. Mm. Uh, you know, when if you look at the you know, some of the internal memos that have come out from Exxon, and it's not just Exxon; it's you know American Petroleum Institute, um, which Exxon was a big player in, but it basically involves every big player in the in the uh, oil industry. Mm-hmm. And they knew going way, way, way back that uh, not just that you know abstractly um, that carbon emissions were going to create a greenhouse gas effect, not just that temperatures were going to rise, but that millions of people were going to die. Uh, you know, they have internal memos from the 1970s, early 1980s, talking about how by, you know, around now, or maybe 2040, 2050, at the latest, you might see things like entire countries having their agriculture decimated. Yeah, they like nailed the, it in their projections. Their scientists yeah. literally nailed it uh, to 2020. Uh, right. They they knew what was going to happen. They they talk about uh, not you know not just that they talk about entire you know a thick you know a band around the equator of the Earth becoming uninhabitable possibly. Mm-hmm. Billions so, of people live there. So you know, definitely that, they they have got it. They they knew what they were doing, and so you're you're in support of this uh, prosecution of the CEOs themselves and the companies. Uh, I mean, absolutely, and I think you know for for the most part when people talk about prosecutions, they've only talked about prosecutions for fraud. I'm actually, you know, the, the fraud case is what it is, and there were some troubles uh, in some ways in New York recently for that. I think they could be prosecuted for homicide. Wow, for homicide. 
Uh, Leah, well, A, do you agree? Uh, but B, uh, how much would, uh, of an effect, he also mentioned ending all fossil fuel subsidies. Mm. How much of an effect would that have on the issue, given the fact that, you know, fossil fuel companies still remain the most profitable on the planet? Yeah. So I think that, for, especially for Joe Biden, that was a pretty good answer. He has not been as forceful on this issue as Bernie Sanders has, in particular, or Elizabeth Warren, or even Kamala Harris when she was in the race. Um, so, you know, being pressed uh, in that particular instance was good for Joe. He came a little stronger out on the issue. Um, you know, fossil fuel subsidies are about $20 billion annually. There are big debates going on right now in the academic literature about how much ending fossil fuel subsidies would reduce production um, of fossil fuels. And we don't really know, but we can certainly say that having them in place is terrible. The last thing we should be doing is giving corporate handouts to industries that are leading to the destruction of Americans' livelihoods, homes, their lives. Uh, we shouldn't be subsidizing uh, industries like that. They should be paying the government, you know, whether that's through a, a fee on mm -hmm. their pollution or potentially being shut down altogether for the damages that they have caused. And I do agree. You know, there have been court cases playing out uh, with uh, attorney generals in New York, and there's going to be one in Massachusetts against ExxonMobil. And I think that this is just not going to stop. A number of cities, including Baltimore, San Francisco, et cetera, are trying to hold these fossil fuel companies accountable. And I know that the Department of Justice, under whoever the next Democratic president is, is going to take up this issue. So um, I don't know how far it goes. Uh, my understanding from talking to lawyers is that the criminal argument is difficult and there isn't necessarily existing statutes to do it under. But I think the key thing is we have to erode the social license to operate for, the, for this industry, that mm. we have to make it clear how damaging they are to the lives of billions of people around the world and that they have to stop. They need to put their money into something else, ideally into the transition. Okay. Well, speaking of putting money, we've got I've got about two more minutes of audio and about three more minutes to cover it all. So wish us all luck. Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, uh, of course, he took a lot of personal heat at the debate on Wednesday, but he has, in fact, invested millions uh, in climate change as a private activist and entrepreneur. Uh, he suggested that fracking's contribution to global warming could be virtually eliminated by fixing leaks, in, methane leaks in the system. He also said it was a necessary transition fuel. Let's uh, play him and get your thoughts. If we enforce some of the rules on fracking so that they don't release methane into the air and into the water, you'll make a big difference. But we're not going to get rid of fracking for a while. And we frack instantly not just natural gas, you frack oil as well. It is a technique. And when it's done poorly, like they're doing in too many places where the methane gets out into the air, it is very damaging. But it's a transition fuel. I think the senator said it right. We want to go to all renewables, but that's still many years from now. And we, before, I think the senator mentioned 2050 for some data. No scientist thinks the numbers for 2050 or 2050 anymore. The 2040, 2035, the world is coming apart faster than any scientific uh, study had predicted. And since we talked a little bit about that in our short on time here, let me fold Pete Buttigieg in here, uh, get his uh, comments, and then we'll have uh, you guys comment on both. He focused on how to overcome partisanship to get climate policies passed in Congress and uh, that he might use coercive measure measures to gain cooperation from China. Let's be real about the deadline. 
It's not 2050, it's not 2040, it's not 2030, it's 2020. Because if we don't elect a president who actually believes in climate science now, we will never meet any of the other scientific or policy deadlines that we need to. Now, I've got a plan to get us carbon neutral by 2050. And I think everybody up here has a plan that more or less does the same. So the real question is, how are we going to actually get it done? We need leadership to make this a national project that breaks down the partisan and political tug of war that prevents anything from getting done. How do you do it? Well, first of all, making sure that those jobs are available quickly. Secondly, ensuring that we are pulling in those very sectors who have been made to feel like they're part of the problem, from farming to industry, and fund as well as urge them to do the right thing. And then, global climate diplomacy. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the idea that convincing is going to do the trick when it comes to working with China. America has repeatedly overestimated our ability to shape Chinese ambitions. But what we can do right. is ensure that we... There, there was a lot in, in both of those comments. Uh, I'll get to Des, you had a thought real quick? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think that the uh, that Buttigieg is focus on bringing in the farming sector, which I think all of the candidates have something on their on regenerative farming, which would be uh, carbon sequestration in the soil. And it, there might be buy-in from Republicans on that, because on Thursday, the current USDA Secretary, Sonny Perdue, actually came out in favor of a carbon tax or some kind of price on carbon mm. dioxide to fund farmers innovating and changing the agricultural techniques that they use. Color me dubious if I know, that's but coming that's from him. that's the first to come out <laughs> of a, of a Trump administration official or, you know, really any Republican. I hear you. Well, we have uh, actually, and we've talked about a lot of the problems and fewer of the solutions than I had hoped to. So that may be for uh, another, another show down the road. There's just too much. Uh, but let me get uh, your, basically your closing thoughts, uh, both David and Leah, uh, and feel free to fold in both Bloomberg and Buttigieg there as you see fit. David, let's start with you. So I think, you know, what we've talked about a bit, it's pretty clear that, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are the big leaders on climate in this in this race right now. Um, Bloomberg, you know, it's interesting, one of the worst and sort of silliest things he said was uh, repeating that natural gas is supposedly a transition fuel. His campaign walked that back the very next day. Ah. Uh, you know, so, um, hmm. so they agreed that he was wrong about that. Hmm. He was oddly sharp, actually, about, he was one of the people who got sort of said, some of the most constructive things about how quickly and urgently we need to be act. Mm-hmm. To act. He says, you know, people talk about 2050. That's not right. You know, it's 2040, 2035. Mm-hmm. You know, we, not even that. We have, we have to get started right away, which is actually one of the most important points and gets missed a lot. People think we need a certain target by 2050 or 2040. No, no. Yes, we need those, but what we need more than anything is to get started on as much as we can as quickly as possible. So, okay. Judge, I actually was extremely disappointed by what he had to say. I think, first of all, saying that you, we need a candidate, uh, a president who believes in science, like, that's that's a long time. We're, we're we're past that. We're not arguing about science anymore. <laughs> that doesn't get you any points. And then he he basically said, you know, we all basically have the same plan, which isn't fully true, but you know, true enough in his case, he's not too far behind the leaders. And the real question is how you're going to get it done. He had no plan for how you're going to get it done. His plan was pull in the sectors who who, who have been made to feel like they're part of the problem and urge them to do the right thing. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He, he agrees that won't work with China. Not good enough. Uh, but he thinks that's going to work with Exxon Mobil. I mean, that, that's good luck. So, good uh, luck. Uh, Lee, and I'm sorry uh, to cut you off there, David, but uh, yep. Lee, I want, Leah, I want to get your closing thoughts since uh, David's eaten up uh, almost all of your time. <laughs> I actually agree with David on both. I think that Bloomberg got a little tripped up over his words. Sometimes when you know a topic intimately or you're new to a debate stage, I think you get confused. Um, 
So uh, I don't think that that's actually the platform of the Bloomberg campaign. Um, I still think that, uh, as David said, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the top candidates on climate change. Um, and I was not very impressed with Pete's answer. I find in general that he speaks in platitudes and not in details. And that mm. certainly doesn't appeal to me, somebody who cares about details. Um, but I can understand why others might, you know, like that. And, and I would say when it comes to these Republican ideas about tree planting and carbon sequestration, that is not a climate solution. <laughs> Unless you are sequestering the carbon underground for long-term storage, you are not sequestering the carbon. If you put it in the soil, you put it in a tree, guess what? Trees burn down. And as somebody who lives in California, mm-hmm. let me assure you, we're having a lot of trees burn down lately. So I just don't think that those are real solutions. And yeah, the Republicans are finally coming to the table, but that's because the activists have made so much progress in terms of getting this issue on the agenda. And the biggest gap between Trump and any Democratic nominee is on climate change. So no, we should not give an inch to these fake climate solutions that the Republicans are pushing. At a girl, Leah Stokes. You can find her work <laughs> at leahstokes.com. You can find her on the Twitters at Leah Stokes. Uh, David Arkush, you can find him at David underscore Arkush on the Twitters and of course over at citizen.org slash energy. It has been a delight to have both of you here even though you didn't fight nearly enough for cable television. (laughs) We will take what we can get. Uh, Thanks guys. Hope to have you both uh, back again soon in the future. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. You bet. Okay, we have got to get out. Desi Doyen, would you like a closing statement? Yes. You've got about six seconds for it. <laughs> Nothing happens without Democrats controlling the Senate. They don't talk about that much, do they? Nobody does. McConnell is the gravedigger of any progressive agenda. Without flipping the Senate. Yep. There you go. You heard it. You heard it here first. Maybe. Uh, okay. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always a great honor. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free at bradblog.com. If you heard the entire show and you want to share it with your friends and family and torture your MAGA-loving uncle, please do. Again, download it from bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves to do what I'm afraid uh, not many other folks do over these public airwaves. Bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you will find, follow, and share all of our programs and snarky comments and everything else from the Twitters and the Facebook where you can find me at the Brad blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>